Welcome to the Witness and Persecution Podcast with Nick and Ruth Ripkin, where we equip you with biblical principles and truths and practices learned from believers in persecution to equip you to help you cross the street and cross the oceans with the good news of Jesus Christ. I'm your host, Anthony Ball, and this is a, the first new episode of the year, first new episode of 2024. And like we did all last year for our listeners, we would love and encourage you uh, if you would go to the platform where you get your podcasts, if you would like and subscribe to Witness and Persecution, and if you would also leave a review that helps us get the word out uh, all over the world, and, and even more than leaving a review, we'd love for you uh, to share the podcast on your social media and uh, with your friends and your circles and just uh, help us get the word out. And Nick is joining us in the studio uh, for the first time in 2024. Uh, so I was going to say, Nick, I haven't seen you since last year. Um, and I decided I shouldn't say that and it already came out. And so, but, uh, how are we doing today? We're doing all right. After teaching all week in, uh, Wake Forest at one of our seminaries from eight in the morning to almost five at night and, and doing that with a horrible chest code. And like I told you, uh, uh, they had gale force winds and floods while we were there and cost us a windshield on our car. So that's getting repaired today. And. But for this old wore out body, two days down, five full days of teaching, two days back, and um, I'm looking for a day off. <laughs> I, I don't blame you, but uh, I didn't let you have a day off today. Uh, you know, Nick, I feel like every time you go to Wake Forest, you either get sick or you get a broken windshield. So they're going to have to start making the allowances for those things not to happen to you anymore. Well, this year I had a really bad respiratory infection. Last year, I had RSV, and the year before, uh, on Saturday, uh, going there, I found I had COVID and had to come home. And so uh, either either my body is trying to say something to me or the devil's trying to hinder me, but we had a good class. We had a real good class. I love it. We've heard some great feedback already, and people who chimed in who said uh, these last few years that they've attended that, that week-long intensive, it's their favorite class at that seminary. And so I may have to maybe enroll next year. Well, we're going to fly back. I'm going to fly back, I think, the 15th, 14th or 15th of February to speak for Missions Day at their chapel and then turn around and fly back home because we've got a lot of overseas guests coming uh, the day I'm gone. So I got to get back because uh, I really want to be a part of that. <laughs> Ruth is not going to let you leave and ha have her do it all by herself. <laughs> yeah. I love that. I love that. Well, Nick, let's go ahead and jump in because we've got uh, a lot to talk about. And you've got, uh, you shared a little bit with me, but I'm looking forward to actually hearing the, the whole story today. Um, for first episode in 2024, uh, you're going to kind of give us a, a story within a story. And so you're not going to give away, I don't think, the whole thing today. Uh, but why don't you go ahead and start unpacking um, the story that you're going to share with us about uh days previous in your in your missions experience and what God taught you and what our listeners need to know from that today. Well, Anthony, I'm not sure if I learned what God was trying to teach me. I do know this whole experience had no bachelor in religion, no masters in theology, no doctorate in ministry, it, it had no foundation from any of those. It, it was, wow. uh, but if you ever wanted an Old Testament story where God showed up just enough to get you into the story, get you out of the story, but those who are inside the story, I don't know if they pulled through or not. And, uh, but sometimes, you know, you just, we, we've got about 10,000 slides and, and negatives uh, in boxes downstairs that we need to put in electronic form. But every now and then, you know, yeah. we pull one of those out. Like I've got one of uh, 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 a huge uh, round of uh, artillery went through a wall in Mogadishu and, and I took a photo through that hole in the wall and then you can see all the destruction. And in the background is a beautiful Indian Ocean. It's God's creation and just how we do our best to blow it up. 
And sometimes you just want to take a, a photograph. A, a, it, it's just something that triggers a lot of memories that, that, that I haven't necessarily uh, suppressed. It's just uh, you just can't revisit all of them and hold all of them in the front of your brain all the right. time. And, and it's just one of those photos out of a collection where you just recall where you were and why you were there and who you were with and what happened and, and did God show up for everybody in the story. Now, I think part of what's going on, we've been keeping our grandson since he was three months old, and he, it's his second birthday today. And so my wife went to pick him up at a quarter to seven, and I was at Kroger's at seven o'clock this morning buying balloons, helium-filled balloons for that kid that I don't think I ever did for my own kids, but I don't know that in Africa we had helium uh, balloons. But, you know, this is one sweet kid. We watched a little bit of a movie that was edgy for him, and he snuggled up in my lap, and, and then Ruth started putting uh, the blinds down. And, and, and uh, Maddox, for the first time in his two years, he said, uh, he said, Bok Bok, that's what he calls me, Bok Bok, uh, it's nap time. And I thought, who wow. are you, and what have you done with my grandson? And, <laughs> but uh, we're going to celebrate his birthday well, we did it a little bit here, but it's actually on on um, on Saturday. But as I rocked our grandson to sleep, you know, after uh, after I'd bought the balloons and they were in the truck, weighed it down, and we dropped the car off to get the windshield replaced, and we took him out to Krispy Kreme for donuts. And Krispy Kreme, if you want to send us the donation, that's good. Or I'll put a box behind me or whatever because they're already <laughs> available. And and then, and then Ruth had him uh, cupcakes for after lunch with two little candles in. And he's trying to figure out how to blow them out, but he's breathing in instead of blowing out. And, and I think just, you know, it's just a day of great memories. But I, uh, I'm not a person that tears up very often. But I'm certain that most of the two-year-olds and three-year-olds and four-year-olds in the story never had a birthday party. And they probably didn't make it out of the story. And uh, as I rocked our grandson to sleep and after he had donuts and cu cupcakes and balloons and he had his snack and his lunch and now he takes a nap, my mind returned uh, to a place where kids were starving and they had less than one set of clothes. And I saw absolutely no toys, nothing that would give a kid the kind of joy that our kids well, this story has a beginning, but I'm not going to go all the way back to it because it's it's part of a bigger story. But uh, in a way, Anthony, I was physically, spiritually, emotionally, completely confined by the Holy Spirit uh, in the desert of Ethiopia, and I couldn't get out. I didn't want to go. I didn't think I'd have to go. Uh, I didn't think that my wife and others could make that happen. But it, like I said, uh, uh, it, it, it's part of a larger story, uh, but it's, it's about a place where, uh, where I interacted with thousands of people in hundreds of villages and they'd only gone, uh, they only were in those places to die. There, there was no, there was no, there was nothing I could do to keep them alive except for the small period of time that I was there for the most part. Now, to back up a little bit, it was obvious inside of Mogadishu uh, and, and Somalia that though we're in there uh, uh, with a secular NGO that uh, the U.S. military, U.S. government did their homework and they had back-checked all of us and they knew who we were and they knew where we were from, and they knew our hearts. And, and uh, oftentimes, because we had done so many favors for the U.S. military, for the Army, and for the Rangers, and, and for others, that uh, often the U.S. troops, out of all the troops that were there, the Nepalese, the Pakistanis, uh, the, the Australians, uh, uh, you know, Egyptians, uh, just dozens of coalition forces, 
uh, I, I did not know this till later that oftentimes uh, uh, the 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 second lieutenants and the captains that provided security for the feeding sites and for the medical sites they were request to be our guards hmm. because of the way that we treated them, the way that uh, they could come off duty with their weapons and we'd cook them a home cooked meal and. And, uh, and, and just the way that we would hang out with them and they'd come over and watch movies and things like that. And, and so at times they would ask me, as I've said before, in some of these uh, podcasts, uh, they in the United Nations would ask myself and uh, our Somali team and sometimes one other American to do surveys for them in places in Somalia where no one had been for three to five years. And they would provide me with uh, meals ready to eat called MREs. And I was shocked today because I needed to catch up on how many is in a box because I found I could buy them on Amazon. Now, how Amazon gets meals ready to eat from the military <laughs> is probably a story that taxpayers don't want to know. Uh, <laughs> and, and so sometimes uh, uh, we did favors for them and they provide uh, fuel MREs and sometimes very outdated maps and what they would allow us to do early on before a lot of other non-government organizations got in there. When the PX was set up, I could shop at the PX hmm. along with the soldiers, along with uh, those who are with the U.S. government and the political side of things. And we, our home became the most popular home in all of Nairobi, Kenya for our kids uh, MK school because I could bring out American chocolate bars and treats that you could get nowhere in Africa, nowhere in their world. And so we would have a, a Saturday where all of the junior and senior girls, sometimes sophomore through seniors would come over and spend one or two nights and just have a sugar high on the suitcases, you know, the tr travel bags of stuff I'd carry out of Mogadishu. Mm. And then the, the plan was the next weekend, the guys would come over and get all of the snicker bars and the Kit Kats and things that they couldn't get anywhere else. But sometimes the girls didn't leave anything for the guys to eat because they just, you know, they just sugared out on everything that I would carry out. And so I, I for a year or so, uh, could shop at that PX and then it got so many non-government organizations there. And they subsidize each one of those shipments, air cargoes, for about $40,000 to fill up that PX so that American employees and the U.S. military can shop at them. And so I went to it as I'd gone often with my little bag and, 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 and to get stuff for our own team. And as I went in, uh, the military uh, lady uh, at the checkout counter said, uh, 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 Dr. Ripken, uh, the major wants to see you. Well, I don't even know who the major is, but she gave me directions across the street. And I walked up to a fourth store building and, and I stood in front of his desk and he said, uh, uh, I'm, uh, I'm sad to inform you that because there's so many non-military, non-U.S. government personnel, uh, buying stuff at the PX, we've been told that unless uh, at checkout uh, our, our, our military personnel can see a stamp in your passport that classifies you as military, military liaison, or government uh, uh, employee, uh, they can no longer uh, sell to you at the PX. I said, well, you've been really good to me and to my team, and we really appreciate what you've done. And he said, I'm not done with you yet. And so I sort of stood at attention as much as a civilian knows how to do it. And he picks up the phone and he calls the PX and he says, I'm sending Dr. Ripken back over to you. And the rule is that unless you see a stamp uh, of uh, a military stamp or American government stamp in his passport, uh, he's not allowed to buy it to PX. So I'm saying to you as your commanding officer, you're not allowed to look at his passport. <laughs> That's amazing. You just let him shop, let him go, and don't look. And therefore, you know, the law is served. And so I'm getting ready 
through a series of spiritual encounters and hard conversations with my team uh, to go to the desert of Ethiopia. And so I go uh, to the base part where there's this captain who's in charge of requisitions and uniforms and boots and, and just thousands of boxes of MREs that one third of the MREs in a box are made out of uh, is, is, is chicken. One third is beef. One third is pork. Uh, they have uh, 2000 calories in each one. In the old days, they used to have three cigarettes in them uh, to serve the tobacco industry with a set of matches. And now they don't do that now, but the toilet paper is still there. And, and uh, 2,000 calories can keep you going. And, and so I went over there, and that captain said, uh, man, you've done a lot for us, and we've had a great relationship, but the regulation has come down that if I see any non-military personnel, non-government personnel taking MREs from now on, I have to stop them. I said, well, you've been really, really good to us, and, and I've probably had a 1,000 more boxes as, as we've done things for you and done things together. And he said, just wait a minute. <laughs> and he called the 10 or 12 people in his squad together and had them face away from the boxes, the stacks, huge stacks of MREs, and, and, and told them not to look. And then uh, had told me whether or not I needed 35 or 50 boxes of them to load them in my pickup truck. And then they wouldn't look until I left. And so I put 50 cases of MREs, 12 packs in each case uh, in the truck. And, and then I was ready to go on a number of trips, but I actually packed them in a number of bigger boxes because I knew that down, I, I just didn't know what I'd find in the desert of Ethiopia. Hmm. And so it's part of a broader story that we'll tell next time or, 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 or sometime uh, to come, uh, uh, but the bigger story needs to wait until, you know, it, it, it's, it's ready uh, to be towed. But while I'm in the Ogaden Desert doing what we'll describe later, word came uh, to me uh, through somehow, I don't know how, maybe through an Ethiopian official, I don't know how, but told me of a village that was somewhere south near the Somali border that no one had been there for three to five years. And the only information they got is that this village had water, but they had absolutely no food and they were beginning to die in, in large numbers. And, and, uh, and actually the Ethiopian government officials asked me if they could provide two trucks, uh, a driver in each truck, uh, four guards to each truck. And because Al-Itahad, the chief fundamentalist group that was killing believers inside of Somalia, were operating in that area, I had to go with a squad of 15 Ethiopian soldiers. And they were tough. My goodness, they were tough. And in each squad of 15, there's five women to each squad of 15. And uh, I would not want to be married to one of those women and have an argument with them. Because you're not going to win it. You're going to be on your back looking up. And uh, one of the guys uh, 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 in the Ethiopian military was a Muslim guy. And one was a, uh, one lady was Muslim. The other 13 were Orthodox Christians. And, and, and because they're living in that area and doing intelligence in that area, uh, they were uh, uh, pretty good Somali speakers. But their main job, they had two jobs. They were to protect our little convoy and go with us. But their job was to look and try to find uh, the fundamentalists to find out to hide and call in a strike on them. Hmm. And, and so uh, that part I had no control over. And, and so we're, we're just out there and, and we're stopping anybody we could find, but we could not find this village. We knew it was due South, but we didn't know whether it was Southwest, Southeast and, we're sort of roaming around the desert uh, following, uh, 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 you know, where we heard there were villages of people. And then one day, we, after traveling for about three days hunting for this village, we came up on this uh, 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 a bunch of Somali nomads 
and their camel herd. And of course, they, they wanted to stop and, and see who we were. And this, they were just shocked and struck dumb when this white, you know, cracker from America, from Kentucky got out of one of those pickup trucks because everybody else in those trucks were Somalis and, and then the Ethiopian military they recognized. But when I got out of the truck and greeted them in Somalia and began walking toward them, they sort of, started walking away from me and looking at each other in consternation and, and a little bit of fear. And, and, and all I could hear was uh, the word for white man and the word for gin. And the couple of the Ethiopian soldiers had followed behind me and they're laughing. And I said, what's going on? He said, they can't decide whether you're a real person or whether you're a, a gin, a D-J-I-N-N, if anybody wants to look it up. And if you are a jinn, a spirit, whether you're a good one or a bad one, and by the pasty look of your skin, they can't see how you could be a good one. And so what what has happened, if you're a jinn and they're watching you, if you walk through water, your feet doesn't get wet. And you can't consume food and you can't drink liquid. And so I walked over to them and asked them if I could have a drink of camel's milk. And they looked at each other like... Uh, Oh, we don't know whether this is a good thing or not. But they have this jug carved out of wood called a dill, D-H-I-L-L. And they would put their sour uh, camel milk in it and set it by the fire and smoke it and smoke it and smoke it at the edge of the fire in the smoke. And uh, then it, it, it's good for five days in the desert. Well, they'll often offer you that, but it's a community jug. It's got people's DNA all around the edge of that. And you can see it sort of bubbled up on that. And, and I don't really need that in the desert where I, I carry amoxicillin and, and, and some other things with me for emergencies. But why challenge, you know, whatever's going on in that world? And, and so what I did, I took a cup out of my truck and I asked them, would you hold the head of your camel so it won't spit at me and bite me? Because they're really territorial and they really just like uh, whoever their herder is. And I walked back there because I've milked cows all my life, both with machine and by hand. And I just took uh, the udder of one of those uh, lactating uh, she camels uh, in my hand and I milked uh, some streams of fresh milk uh, in that can and I, I, I let the the, the nomadic guys see that I actually had milk in the can. And then I just consumed all of it and gave it back to them. Listen, brother, after they watched me milk that camel. They are laying on the ground, kicking their legs up in the air, laughing. And they get up and they pat me on the back. And, and they, they really say, you're, you're real and you're human, though you don't look that well. And you don't look that healthy, your color of your skin. And, and, uh, we just had a really good visit with those camel herders. And, and then we got down to the business while we were there. And they told us exactly where that village was and how far away it was. And so we said our goodbyes and we patted each other on the back. And they let me pat my favorite camel on the neck and held her so she wouldn't bite me. And, and we were about a half a day's drive uh, from Emi. And we got there at the crack of dawn of one day. And I could overlook this uh, uh, this picturesque village, like you would want to make a postcard out of it. And it, it's a it's across this beautiful deep blue river that goes around Anthony about 180 degrees around uh, 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 this side and around the the sides of, that we could see of the village. But it's got a 30 uh, foot bank that you have to slide down or you have to go way down uh, a pathway either way uh, to go down and, and get down to the level of the village. And then you've got to find uh, somebody's got to bring a dugout canoe uh, to transport you over because the thing's about uh, 30, 40 feet wide and it's 20 foot deep. So it, it's coming out of the mountains and it's only fresh water that I've ever seen of that amount in that desert. Hmm. And so as we pulled up, uh, our two vehicles and the and the Ethiopian military above that village, all of a sudden 
uh, these uh, uh, skeletal children started crawling, uh, uh, clawing and crawling their way, trying to pull their way up to the uh, up to the banks. And 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 uh, uh, some of them are so weak with starvation uh, that uh, some of the guys in the truck and even some in the military uh, 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 reached down with the long ends of their rifles and. Uh, you know, uh, equivalent of a AK-47 or AR-15, and and help pull those kids up to the bank, and and I mean, uh, they were just death waiting to happen. Um, and so I had, I don't remember Anthony. I think I had three boxes of MREs left, and now we know by the way the crow flies that we could be back uh, to the regional town that we were based after out of in about uh, 14, 16 hours, depending whether or not we had, a, you know, any kind of trouble whatsoever. And so I, I just talked with the guards and the uh, Ethiopian military had their own stuff that they were carrying. And I talked with the guards. I said, is it worth the risk that I uh, uh, open up these last three boxes of MREs that I got from the U.S. military in Mogadishu and carried them all that way to Nairobi and on a plane and a big plane and small plane and then trucks and and we've been in, living off of it and I said, uh, do you think we can make it back uh, to the regional city if I give these kids all this food? And they said we've got to. And they said, Doctor Nick, whether we live or whether we die, uh, uh, we're if we don't feed these kids. They're going to die. And so one of the, I took my pocket knife out and I opened up uh, uh, that first box of MRE and my heart almost stopped because like I said, every box is one third chicken, one third beef and one third pork. And I looked and that whole top layer, uh, like it's uh, six and six, there, there's 12 packages, uh, 2000 calories each. And in that first box, hundred uh, percent pork. Mm. And this village and all these kids, they're 100% Muslim. And so with my heart beating in my throat, uh, I opened up the next two box and I scattered out all 36 packages in the back of the pickup truck. And, and this should never happen. It is an anomaly. It's a fluke. It, it is is something that uh, uh, it, it just statistically, there's no possibility that I could open up three boxes of MREs and have 36 packages of pork. Wow. And my guys can read that English. And, 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 I, and I said uh, to the drivers of the truck and the, the guys who are the, sort of the head of the expedition and, and, and talking to the Muslims that are in that squad of 15, I said, what am I going to do? They said, what's wrong, Dr. Nick? And I said, all 36 bags. Should be one third, one third, one third. They said, "Yeah, we we've, we've been eating. You've been eating the pork, and we've been eating the beef and the and the chicken on this trip." And I said, "But uh, uh, they're all pork. Mm. What am I going to do? These kids are all Muslim." And they looked at me and they said, "With totals, they're completely serious and sincere, uh, Doctor Nick. You can't feed them this pork." But Dr. Nick, you cannot not feed these children. Mm. I said, then what am I going to do? They said, we don't know. And so I looked at these children. And they're looking at those boxes of food or whatever they hoped it would be. And I've got probably, I've got 15 soldiers looking at me. I've got four, eight guards, two people in the cab. So that's that's four, eight. I've got 12 Somalis looking at me. And they've said, you, you, you can't give them the pork and you cannot not feed these children. They're going to die. And so I just don't know where it came from. It came from the innermost part of my being. And I said to them, uh, what, if, what if I just stop and pray over these... Um, you know, boxes of 12, 36 packets of pork. 
And I ask God to turn them, I ask in Jesus' name, I ask God to turn them into chicken and turn them into beef. Hmm. And the Somali guys looked at each other and they said, uh, Dr. Nick, that's what you should do. Hmm. And so I held my hands out in the way that Orthodox pray, the way that Muslims pray and, and a lot of Christians pray. And I looked and all of the Muslim, uh, 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 the Somalis with me were holding their hands out. All the children were just looking at me and all the soldiers were, were uh, holding their hands out and it stacked their weapons. And I just said, God, uh, 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 these children are starving. And if, if I don't share this food with them, uh, it's certain they will die before I can get further help to them. And so I said, Lord, you change uh, the, uh, the water into wine. Uh, you cleanse the lepers uh, of their leprosy. You, you cast the demons out of the demonic and you healed the woman of the issue of blood and you fed uh, thousands upon thousands with just a few, few loaves and fishes. And I said, Lord, if you can feel, feed thousands and thousands of people with just a few loaves and fishes, Lord, you can, you can turn uh, this pork into whatever you want to turn it into. And I'm asking you right now for the sake of the lives of these children uh, to turn uh, this, uh, all these bags of pork into chicken and turn it into beef. And I ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. And without waiting, without waiting, every Muslim, every Ethiopian soldier, a hundred percent believed that Jesus had changed that stuff into something consumable about that children. And they all took uh, their bayonets off of their rifles and their AK-47s. They began to slit the tops of those uh, plastic bags of MREs. And, and, and our biggest problem was get the children to eat a little bit at a time because we knew if they ate too much, they would throw up. And, and, and they went and got some of those jerry cans of water and filled it up and made those children eat little bits at a time, little bits at a time, and then drink and rest and eat a little bit of time. And it, it took about three hours uh, until they were sated. And, 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 and I'm looking around, and, and I just asked uh, Abdi Aziz, one of the guards, I said, uh, what, what, did you, what did you experience? They said, we experienced those children starving and you ask your Jesus to change the pork that Muslims cannot eat into chicken and beef, and your Jesus did that. Wow. And all of the 1618 wow. Somalis believed it. All of the Ethiopian Orthodox and Muslims believed it. And why is it? Why is it? The only person that had any doubt whatsoever was the guy that had been to a Baptist college and uh, got a master's at a Baptist seminary and got a doctorate. Mm. Why? The children didn't doubt. The, uh, all of the Somalis, the, all the Muslims, and all the Ethiopians believed in the depths of their soul that they watched God, who was, uh, 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 and Jesus himself through the Holy Spirit, had saved the lives of those children. And so I, I sat on that bank until those children couldn't eat anymore. And I left them with the Ethiopians, and I took two Somalis with me, and we rented a boat, one of those dugout canoes for about, we paid the guy probably the equivalent of a dollar. He probably charged a, what the equivalent was, 10 cents. And we went across that wide river into the village Emi, and Anthony, it's just huts, you know, a maze of huts. You just go one direction to another direction, another direction. And I walked about 50 yards in and out of these streets into Emi, and I came face to face with Al Ittihad. And they had bazookas. Whoa. They had RPGs. They had machine guns. Uh, they were armed to the teeth, and they were ready uh, to use them. And they said to me, white man, what are you doing here? And, and, uh, and just, just said some harsh things to me. I said, if you'll look, if you'll send one of your guys and walk around the corner and peer around one the last uh, uh, hut before he gets to the river, you can look on the bank. And what I'm doing here is feeding children that were about to starve to death because their parents have nothing to give them. Mm. And I told him, 
that we had been looking for this village because we heard it was dying and that I had come with uh, uh, a bunch of Somalis looking and, and seeing if we could find a way to save the lives of these villagers. And they said, well, if you're feeding our children, Somali children, with your own food and, and, uh, uh, and, and you're here to see how you can help this village get back on its feet again, uh, then we will let you live. And I said, I appreciate that. I appreciate that a lot because I don't mind praying again. Jesus already showed up once, and now he showed up again. I said, but I've got a problem. They said, what's your problem? I said, there's 15 members of the Ethiopian military up at my two trucks. And when I walk up there, they're going to ask me if I saw you. And if I lie to them and they find out that you are actually in this village, then I'm going to jail. But if I tell you I'm going to go back and tell them that you are here, what are you going to do? They said, well, since you care so much for Somali people and you care so much for our children, you just go back over that river and go up that bank and tell Ethiopian military we're here waiting for them. Mm. And I said, well, then what's going to happen to the parents of the children? What's going to happen to this village? And what's going to happen to these children and when you start fighting like this, and especially if this squad calls in some more help on the radio, they said, well, it's going to be a mess. So I said, can, can, can we get the elders together of this village and, and talk about this before everybody cocks their weapons? And I go back over there and, and they start coming across on boats or whatever they do. And they said, we'll give you 30 minutes or 40 minutes to do that. And so I sat down with a circle of elders and we drank a little bit more milk and, and they, you know, I'm not going to eat their stuff. And, and, and I just uh, shared with them some crackers and things that I had in my backpack. And I told them, here's the deal. And I told them the situation that, that they were caught between a, what we say in Kentucky, a rock and a hard place. And, <laughs> and, and so they met together and then they met with, uh, uh, Ethiopia with Al-Itahad uh, and I said uh, would you mind if I go about across cross over the river again and see if I can buy you some time from the military and they said do whatever you think is best and so I went with uh, two guards with me with the elders sitting there with uh, basically being held hostage by Al-Itahad and I went over there and, and I told them I'd found the village I found the needs, but also I found, uh, uh, you know, 10 or 12 all at the hide armed to the teeth. And I said, but uh, there's a lot of women and children between you and the maze in, of that village that are going to die if you go in there and, and try to fight your way through that village. And they said, well, here's what we'll do. They talked together. I don't know if they talked to anybody on the radio or not, but I could look from that bank and overlooked that village. And I couldn't see inside the streets. Neither could the military or the, or the Somalis that are with me. But I could look past that village and see part of the desert plain with almost no tree, no scrubs on it whatsoever. But you could look about uh, four, you can't tell distances like that. But it was somewhere between five and ten miles away were two great big mountain ranges with a small mountain pass right between them. Hmm. And the Ethiopian military said, you go back to the village and you tell all it to hide. We're going to stand up here and watch. And when they get to the entrance of that, those two mountain passes, then we're after them. Hmm. And that way the children won't be harmed and the village won't be harmed. But when we see them get to that mountain pass, we'll be coming as fast as we can. So I went back and took that dugout canoe back and and with the Somali translators and we went back and met with the elders and the uh and I said here's the only deal they'll give you is that if you leave the village now they can watch you from a distance and they're going to give you how many hours it takes you to get to that mountain pass when they see you entering that mountain pass they're coming after you they said tell them to come on and they left and they they, they, they started out of the village and I went back and I waited there because I felt like 
being the broker of that little bit of few hours of peace that I wanted to stay there and make sure that the children and the elders and the others didn't caught and, and I didn't get caught between uh, uh, those two forces and we stayed there and what they did, they left somebody on top of that bank watching and they lined up a bunch of canoes and things. And once they could see Al-Tahad in the distance entering that mountain pass, uh, they went around that village and they were off in, in chasing. And I don't know what they called in to support them, but I didn't wait to find out because we'd given away most of our water uh, and, and most of and all of our food and just kept a few crackers, package of crackers to ourselves. And so we got in the car and, and began driving the day and, and as much as we could during the night trying to get back to uh, that uh, 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 little regional city in which that I'd been based out of that a lot more of a story takes place. And this story doesn't really have an ending. It didn't really have a beginning. It's just a confluence of a lot of factors, a, a lot of things that uh, happened in the past that allowed uh, fuel to be given, that MREs to be given, uh, directions to be given, uh, to hook up uh, almost miraculously with the Ethiopian military because they wouldn't let me travel in that area where the fundamentalists were operating, no matter how good the cause was. Uh, uh, and, and then the spin hours uh, after watching uh, uh, scores of Muslims and Orthodox experiencing God changing the water into wine, or in this case, the pork into beef and in chicken, and to watch just scores and scores and scores of children be brought back from the brink of death as they could eat those things over a period of days until we could make it back to this major city and send a, a relief truck out there. Mm -hmm. But the whole way, I'm looking in through the mirror that is my soul and wondering again and again, how could the Muslims and the Orthodox be so certain that when this country boy from rural Kentucky prayed in Jesus' name for pork to be changed into life-sustaining beef and chicken, that the only one that had any doubts whatsoever was a guy with a doctorate from the seminary. Mm. Because it's been so, my soul had been so edited over the years that the Bible, as evil would allow us to say, is the authoritative, inerrant, inerrant, infallible Word of God. Evil doesn't mind you saying that, and it's a clear authoritative record of what God used to do. Right. That's how I was taught right. it. That's how I was introduced to it. Hmm. That the Old Testament was in past tense, and the New Testament had been so severely edited that all the miracles that surrounded the life of Jesus and his disciples and the women that followed him and that followed the faith in the book of Acts, that somehow they had ceased to exist. And even though I watched it and I touched it and I felt it and I prayed over it and I cried over it, why is it that it's only the Westerners that doubt that everything that God has ever done, God is still doing? See, this is before we ever went to one person in persecution other than the ones we're trying to keep alive in Somalia. It's before we watched all the miracles in the 72 countries where we did over 650 interviews where we watched, actually watched and experienced Scripture come alive in the lifetimes of people in, in, uh, uh, of Muslim background, 
who had believed a Hindu background, who believed communist, atheist, uh, 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 African traditional religions, uh, uh, Buddhists that had believed and just see the mighty hand of God, just like in the book of Acts. But that day on the bank of that village with uh, just scores of starving children looking up at me, Mm. I just said, God, what are you going to do? And I found that really God only had one thing that he could do. And we gave him the opportunity to do it. And in reality and in actuality, God that day took 36 packets, 2,000 calories of pork, and he transformed it into chicken and beef. And he saved the lives of scores of children and some old, old men and women until we could send further help there. Mm-hmm. Sometimes in the midst of a story that you never wanted to be a part of, God does a detour. And he shows up and he shows you that he's still a God of miracle because that's just his nature. Amen. To feed the hungry and to clothe the naked and to give that cup of cool water in his name to raise from the dead and to call us to new life. Mm. That's just who Jesus is. And if we don't believe that he can change pork into beef and chicken so that children can live and Muslims can see his glory, then we should stay locked up in our churches and stay home and practice our faith and continue to believe in a Bible and a God that used to be but I'm not going to stay there. I cannot live there any longer. Once you see God's glory unleashed and how he loves and how he weeps over those who are broken, you never want to go back to a sterile faith that is something that you practice rather than something that you live and you give away. Wow. That's just a piece of what happened those months. And it doesn't haunt me, Anthony. It just just calls every bit as I look at Maddox trying to blow out when he doesn't know how to blow at two years of age and he breathes in instead and he breathes the candle toward him. And that donut and the icing on that cupcake is just the best treat that he could have and one he's going to have often this week. (laughs) And he's never known one day of hunger in his two-year-old life. Right. And I know the ones that we saved their lives for a season, but I don't know where they are today. I don't know what their life situation are today. Did they grow up? Did they go to school? Were they able to marry, have their own children, and just have life? We don't know. And there's three billion people like that on earth today that we don't know that are waiting for miracles to happen in Jesus' name. Let's don't park it. Hmm. Let's don't store it up in photographs in our basement. Let's, Let's don't make Jesus once upon a time. Let's talk about tonight when we go to sleep what Jesus did today. And in Jesus' name, watch him do 
what he always does. Wow. I love that. That is incredible and powerful. Nick, thank you for sharing that story. It's convicting to me, and I hope it's convicting to our listeners. We serve a a God who works in present active tense. Present active tense. He's calling us even today, even today, that there's work for us to do. There are commands for us to obey. He's with us. He goes before us. He's working. He's powerful. He's doing these miracles. He's saving people. He's sending people to the, the nations and to the darkest places of the earth. And I hear that story, and I think of a, a phrase you say often, Nick. Why wouldn't we, why wouldn't we want to be a part of that? Why wouldn't we want to be on the, the frontiers and on the edge of lostness, seeing God do what he has always been doing? I don't know what those kids thought when they went to bed that night before, but I thought of what the psalmist said, tears last for a night, but joy comes in the morning. morning. And we are to be that joy. We are to be that joy for the peoples of the earth. Mm. Wow. Incredible. Listeners, we pray that you take that to heart today and uh, find a way to be obedient to what God has commanded you to do across the street and across the oceans to take the joy and the love of Jesus to the nations. Thank you, Nick, so much for sharing that. Our listeners, thank you so much for joining. We pray that we have a, a wonderful year ahead of episodes and stories and teaching and equipping as we uh, take these stories, truths, and practices from believers of persecution uh, to help you and to equip you to do what we talked about today, uh, to take that joy, to take that light, and take that love uh, to the ends of the earth uh, so that those three billion people can have a chance to say yes to Jesus. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Thank you for being with us today. We look forward to a wonderful and great year. This has been Witness and Persecution, and we will be with you next time.